This is Strange Assembly episode 166, Spectacular Spectacular. I am, as always, Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Jeremiah Roy. Hello, Internet. This is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast, and today is a special episode for two reasons. The first is that this episode is coming to you courtesy of Roy's donation to the Jack Vassell Memorial Fund. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Jack Vassell Memorial Fund provides for gamers in need. It was originally set up by Tom Vassell in memory of his son. You can check that out at jackvassell.org. So thank you very much, Roy, for donating to charity to, to be on the show. It was totally worth it. And actually, it's it's more than just being on the show because the the item that was auctioned up was getting to dictate what an episode was going to be, not just appearing on it, but having production control. And Roy decided that we should finally, after all of these years and meaning to do one but never quite getting around to it, doing a, a new player episode for Legend of the Five Rings. 166 episodes later, it happens. <laughs> Finally, yes. So, as many of our listeners may know, we, we started out as an exclusively Legend of the Five Rings podcast. These days, we're about, let's say, half Legend of the Five Rings, half everything else, tabletop gaming. We are gamers, and we tend to be inclusive more than <laughs> exclusive. Before we get into the the content of the episode, I didn't know if you... Had anything you wanted to say, Roy, about why you chose this topic or anything about the, the charity or anything like that? Well, the short answer to the charity itself is that I had the opportunity to donate. And out of the 600 and well, actually probably way more than 600 and something item list that they had available up for auction, this was the one that was like, hey, look, I can have something for a thing that I enjoy because I'm definitely a uh, Strange Assembly subscriber, so the fact that I would get to be on the podcast that I listen to and possibly even give something back to the community, like this new player episode, it was definitely kind of a slam-dunk decision. Roy mentioned the the long list. The big annual fundraiser for the Jack Vassell Memorial Fund is an auction that's conducted through Board Game Geek. There's one giant geek list of all the different things and some of it's community stuff like podcasts. Sometimes it's just people who have extra games that they're putting up. A lot of game companies, including Alderac Entertainment Group, the company that makes Legend of the Five Rings, put up sometimes massive collections of their stuff, sometimes specialty items or prototypes. So it's you know be a good what nine months until it comes around again. But if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can keep an eye out for it. It'll be definitely something that happens on the front page of a uh, board game geek. I believe that's bgg.com. Yes, or you can type yeah. out the whole board game geek, or or you can type RPG geek or video game geek, and then follow links. It's a it's a whole big family. Yes, they're definitely very uh, once again very inclusive <laughs> as to letting people know so the first thing i guess 
is what is Legend of the Five Rings and a card game, right? That's enough of a description to let people know what it is, right? Well, if you want to boil it down to a, a single sentence description, that will work. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect even if I was only going to describe it with one sentence, I'd, I'd have to come up with a, a somewhat more complex sentence than that. Yeah, so Le- Legend of the Five Rings is a it is a card game. It is set in a it's a fantasy samurai setting. It, it draws on Japanese and Asian mythology, but it is in no way, shape, or form a hif- historical setting. The the CCG is the biggest thing, but it's not just a CCG. There is also a, a role playing game that's in its fourth edition. That's not we're not really going to get into to that in this, but it's out there. I've got a whole gigantic row of it. It's taking up four of the cubes on my my role-playing game dedicated IKEA cube shelf uh-huh. over there. It has been going <laughs> it's been going for a bit. You can even buy a Legend of the Five Ring board game, Ninja Legend of the Scorpion Clan, although it, it doesn't really have anything to do with L5R. Only the fact that it features the awesome Scorpion Clan being sneaky sneaky around the stalwart and brave Lion Clan. I think that the single biggest calling card of Legend of the Five Rings as compared to other games it is that it is an interactive storyline game. It's not just a game. There is this ongoing world that surrounds it, and I think that that is true of a growing number of games now, but the way that L5R stands out is the way in which the players get to shape what is happening with that story. There are dozens of tournaments every year that either in aggregate or and as individual results, depending on the size of the tournament, get to affect what is going to happen in the plot of the world and get to... You can get your name on a card, right? There's a lot of opportunities to do that, have a, a little bit of an influence, pick a keyword or... Or, or pick or name a card, that sort of thing. Oh, yes. There's definitely the level of play that you have to reach in order to have an effect on the game is also not exclusively for the best of the best. You don't have to be a world champion or get invited to a, a currently defunct exclusive invite-only tournament in order to have these effects. I still remember hearing about one of the original Legend of the Five Rings archivists getting a card from him because he was maintaining a card database on his own before Oracle of the Void went live. And he's forever immortalized in that Dragon Archivist card because he was in charge of that, and he supported the game in his own way. Yes, and that was was originally Tomori Shosei, although the card is, is still around now, although time has passed, so it's a soul of person. Ah, the, the characters in the game, as, as time passes in the game, they'll... Uh, you can get more experienced versions of the char- of the cards of the characters, or sometimes if they want to mechanically keep something in, in the game after the character would not be around anymore, they will print a different version with a different name, but it'll say Soul of Tamori Shosei. Right. Yeah, the, def- the definite thing that we will want to acknowledge to a new player at this is that yes, it is a collectible card game. There are different rarity tiers and everything. But we don't have a power nine here. We don't deal with cards that cost 
five, six hundred, seven hundred dollars or the price of a small automobile. And your collection doesn't get outdated to the point where everything you buy today will be useless in a couple of years. Because again, like you said, cards can pass on through the ages through mechanical means with the soul of keyword. And again, all this is kind of an important point to touch on because the main thing with Legend of the Five Rings is that it is the distinction of being the number two longest running collectible card game as we approach year 20 here. Yeah, uh, it magic obviously is the only thing that has been around longer. But I think it's also not worrying, especially as compared to what is on the the sort of card game market now is that Legend of the Five Rings is not a simple game. So if you're one of those gamers who looks at something like Magic and considers it this simplistic waste of time, uh, that's not what you're you're getting in for with Legend of the Five Rings. It is something that has substantially more onboard complexity and generally a lot more instances of Certainly tactical depth, but also strategic depth to it than I think any other CCG does. Yeah, when we get into the basics, we're definitely going to mention that, how the fact we have the Dynasty deck and the Fate deck. And in comparison to Great Big Granddaddy Magic, there is no such thing in Legend of the Five Rings as the Autopilot's Legend of the Five Rings deck. We are coming up on the 20th anniversary of Legend of the Five Rings. There's a new large set... The way they're releasing right now, there's a large set at the beginning-ish of the year, every year, and that kind of defines what the legality will be for the year and, and, and how rotations work for different sorts of formats. It does have rotation, You just like if you're familiar with Magic or with Fantasy Flights, LCGs have this now, where things rotate uh, at some point. But the new base set is called 20 Festivals. It has gotten through the docks now, so it's it's just a question of it getting out now. I think on the 27th of March it will be available in Stronghold stores. I believe that was the latest post from uh, the AEG website that they had street-dated street it for the Stronghold stores pretty much at the end of March. So that is the new base set. It's 20 festivals for 20 years. We're kind of ramping into a time a, a new era parent has just been named to become the new emperor and at the end of of the big tournament season that's going on right now Kote there's a spring Kote season and a a fall Kote season historically the spring Kote season is the more prominent one but we're AEG's working to keep that a more year-round thing but at the end of that season he will be crowned and then because you can't have a new emperor and then have smooth sailing Bad things will start to happen, and will, and as the clans will have to scramble to to hold on. You mean those nine different clans don't get along with each other? Why is that? Does anybody really get along with anybody for any length of time? There are nine clans. You're going to hear later in this episode. We're going to have somebody come on and talk from who who's a, a loyal player of each of those clans. But that is another thing that we'll we'll touch on. That is that right? People care very deeply in the, the L5R community about their clans. And there's a lot of players who are really loyal to that one clan that they will play that one clan come come heck or high water. 
and rules changes. <laughs> and so I, I think that is a big part of the really great community that Legend of the Five Rings has, that there's not just the main forums that the company runs, but each clan has its own forum that, that is run by fans where you can come and say, oh, I'm a new player interested in X clan. What advice can you give me sometimes? I think more so in in L5R than any other card game, you've got a, a very serious ability to just kind of walk in to an online forum and say, I'm a new player and I have very few cards. Does anybody have some extra stuff? And people would just mail you things. I mean, don't rely on that or 300 of you go do that all at once. We're going to be in trouble. But uh, <laughs> Large of the Five Rings players are well known for being highly, highly generous. Sometimes that's individual player things, like we're here donating to, to Jack Vassal. The company has done a number of charitable things, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation card, and just other great community things. It, it's sort of a sad thing for the community that there have been recently a number of long-standing members of the community who have, who have passed away, and that's sad, but you actually see the company making cards in memoriam of these long-standing players, which I don't know anybody else who would do that, any other company that would do that, any other game where the community is so important that that is such a big deal. It's definitely uh, something to note that most people who are familiar with the concept of collectible card games know that they have tournaments with prizes and stuff, and you know, you got to be number one in order to bring home the big cash prize. And that's not truly what L5R is about in terms of a competitive scene. It's definitely more of a social experience for each of the Legend of the Five Rings players, where they like to interact with the other members of other clans, and they definitely wish to affect, once again, the main storyline that's going on. It's not about coming in first all the time with Legend of the Five Rings players. I can definitely say that in a, well, back, try not to go too far back into the, into the Wayback Machine, when the uh, Scorpion provinces were kind of in trouble from the uh, fallen god Kali Ma, I played up against the eventual winner of the New York Cote in the first round, and we literally went to time on the match because he was obviously playing Crane, I was playing Scorpion, and that usually has a lot of back and forth that we'll get into later on. But when the time was called, I literally asked him, what are you going to do? And the Crane player said I, he literally didn't hadn't thought about what he was going to do if he had won the whole Cote, if he was going to try and save the province or let it burn for personal gain. And I said, you know what? I will give you the win if you promise to save the province. And he agreed. I gave him the win. He won the whole shebang, and the province was spared for the New York Cote. And I felt like I had done that personally through my own nefarious scorpion manipulations. Well, that's my big, big impressive story, so let's talk about the game more now. If you're a new player or a perspective player, you might want to know something more about how uh, the actual game plays. So this is a card game. It's customizable. So you bring 
your own deck, except in L5R, it's actually two decks. You have a dynasty deck, and that has the characters who will form the main part of your units out on the board, and then also your economic cards, which in, in Legend of the Five Rings are called holdings. You also have a fate deck, and the fate deck has one-shot effects, and it also has various kinds of attachments like weapons and spells and followers that will attach to your characters to improve their effectiveness either on the battlefield or in the court. Your fate deck operates like a normal hand of cards would in any other card game. You have a deck, you draw a card, it's at the end of the turn, not at the beginning of the turn, like it would be in a lot of things, but you just you have a hand of cards. Your dynasty deck comes out of what are called provinces, and you have four provinces at the start of the game. Very rarely you might gain one, more likely you'll lose some over the course of the game. And what will happen is that those will start out face down at the beginning of every turn as part of the whole I unbow my guys, which is what they call turning them sideways in, in Legend of the Five Rings is bowing them and then straightening them. One of the things you'll do is turn face up all the cards in your provinces, and later on you'll have the opportunity to buy those out. One of the other most distinctive features of Legend of the Five Rings is that you have four different wind conditions, although two of those are kind of mirror images of each other. I think it would be fair to say that military is the most commonly played wind condition. Right now, it's definitely military, I would say, is about 65% of the field right now. Yeah, I mean, every every clan has the option to play a non-military deck, but still military is the most common. And military, you win by attacking your opponent, but you don't just attack their life total or something more abstract than that. You actually are individually attacking and taking out each of those four provinces that they start the game with. And the combat phase then becomes a very big part. There's a lot of strategic decisions about how much to attack with and how much maybe to hold back. And once you get into the battle, depending on the stage of the game, there can be a lot of of units that are are vying back and forth with these battle actions. But that's for a a military win. Well, well, I guess everybody's going to have... Anytime there's a military deck involved, there are going to be fights. Uh, So even if the other player is playing one of the other win conditions. The other two more standard win conditions are honor and dishonor, because this is not just a battlefield, and you win the game if you start your turn with a family honor of more than 40, and at that point, it's basically you are so acclaimed as just the fantastic, honorable samurai paragons that your opponent cannot defeat you, that, that the favor of the emperor will come upon you, and in the con- this conflict between your two clans, there's no way that they can win anymore. And the flip side of that is a dishonor victory, which is if at the end of a player's turn, if their family honor is at minus 20... Or less. Or less, yes. Then they lose, right? They have been shamed. No one will take them seriously anymore, right? Because the, the whole samurai... The emperor just pretty much doesn't like you anymore at that point. Right, because the samurai is not just about brute force and combat. It is about how you are supposed to behave and supposed to be and following the code of Bushido. And so there are 
obviously there are things you can do over the course of the game that will gain you honor either as part of a primary goal of your deck or incidentally and there are things you can do that can actually lose your own family honor if you're doing underhanded things you know if you're running out there with a bunch of of sneaky ninja cards or you know you have tainted evil minions in your deck that may be reflected in your honor total as the game goes on the final way of winning is an enlightenment victory which is out there for some people it's very important for some people it's more of a flavor thing it most often could be described as fairly described as l5r in hard mode and that is that each of those elemental rings there is a card representing that there is the ring of fire the ring of earth the ring of the void and each of those cards is unique and has a specific combination of things that you have to do to be able to put the ring into play if, if you're not playing an enlightenment deck you can also play those cards out of your hand for one shot effects but if you can get all five of them into play then you win no start of the next turn no end of your opponent's turn you just win you figure things out you are the enlightened master that all will seek for eternal wisdom and guidance and you pretty much run the show at that point what can they really do to to trust you once you are at one with the elements? Or sorry, what can they do to touch you once you are at one with the elements? The flow of a turn, like, okay, you have your first couple of turns where you're mostly producing economy. But the flow of the turn is, right, you have your default sort of refresh phase at the beginning, which does not involve card draw. That's at the end. Then you have an action phase. If you're a military deck, the main thing you're doing during the action phase is buffing your guys by doing things like putting attachments. You, If you're having a more controlish deck, it might mess with the other opponent's guys a little bit, but a lot of it's focusing on buffing your guys. If you're playing an honor or especially a dishonor deck, you might do a lot of things during the action phase. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, you're, it's my opponent's action phase. I see that Miramoto Kagato is, is a very dishonorable fellow, right now so i'm gonna do some political manipulations to bow him down and so he can't work i guess i just use a couple of, of lingo terms in there where i said bowing is the equivalent of tapping a guy but a personality who is bowed can do very little they can't assign to attack or defend if they're in an army and they're bowed they don't have their force anymore they can't use their actions there are things you can do to, to straighten them again but while they're bowed they're kind of shut down and Part and parcel with the honor-dishonor thing is that a individual personality actually has a personal honor trait. They don't just have traits that are about fighting. They have personal honor. And when you, once per turn, when you bring a personality out, you can increase your family honor by their personal honor. You know, you basically get to gain honor by association with this noble soul who is who is willing to serve you. And if that personality can then get dishonored, it sets their personal honor to zero, and then there's a variety of effects that personalities are somewhat more vulnerable or much more vulnerable to when they are dishonorable. What's up next is the attack phase, which is when you, you do your attack, you do your combat. This is, you know, a lot of your broad strategic decisions are. And then after that is the dynasty phase, which is when you actually buy new personalities and holdings, or anytime you're buying either of those things out of your provinces, your dynasty deck. So that sets up some interesting decision-making. You know, you have to decide before you attack how much of your money you're going to invest in attachments versus how much you're going to hold back for buying more defense. 
guys that you attack with aren't going to be available to defend. So do you do you attack with everybody and leave yourself more open? Are you going to be able to buy enough to, to successfully defend? Do you care? I, you know, you might just be willing to let your opponent swing back because you think you can do more damage. But I think that's the basic f- flow of the game. I don't know, do you think I left anything out there, Roy? I think the main thing is that during the combat phase, you have to definitely keep both offense and defense in mind because people who get sent out to attack once they're done attacking, with some notable exceptions, will become bowed. And the main thing that you have to consider is that people who are bowed cannot be used to defend your provinces on your turn. That is a big decision, and we'll talk a little bit about attacking defending. At the tail end of the episode, we'll have a few tips for, for new players, sort of broad strategic things, but we'll we'll sort of hold that off to the end, because there's one... Well, I guess there's there's two kinds of card, but one really important one that we have not mentioned so far, and that is your stronghold. If you've played a lot of card games that have factions, this is your faction card. It mechanically defines what faction you are. Are you Phoenix Clan? Are you Mantis Clan? Are you Spider Clan? But it also sets some important numbers. It defines what your starting family honor is, which is not only important for how far away you are from an honor or a dishonor win or loss, but also whoever starts with the highest family honor goes first. So you have the high honor lion. They are always going to go first unless it's against another lion player. And so they, the, the stronghold actually has two sides. You get some extra bonuses when you're, when you're going second. But that's one thing that it defines. It defines your starting economy which is mostly four for each of the clans. There are some exceptions, but the default is you get you have four money to spend on your first turn, and then you're building from there. It also defines your default province strength, which is going to be how hard it is for other players to be able to destroy your provinces. And boosting province strength is the single most common bonus that you get for going second, is that it's then going to be harder for the other player to take down your provinces on the first attack. Yes, on the uh, side of the military victory, it's also an important thing to note that you start with, as you mentioned, you start with four provinces at the beginning of the game. When a province is destroyed, you don't get the card that normally gets generated at the beginning of your turn when that province is destroyed. So as you lose provinces in the game, your options start to become much more limited. So whether you are planning to smash your opponent's provinces down in a military win, or if you're just trying to reach the magic 40-point honor total, maintaining the defense of your provinces is very key to early wins in in the game. I guess since I mentioned that there was another card, there's, there's also Sensei you can play with, which the stronghold is the core embodiment of your clan. You can also have a Sensei, which lets you play a little bit more of a of a side theme within the clan, like playing a clan that is primarily big, tough warriors, but, you know, they have a merchant family, and if you want to play a deck that's based around the merchant family, there might be a a sensei for that. But, like I said, the the stronghold defines the factions, so what we're going to do now is bring on to the show uh, a representative for each of these factions, and they're going to tell you a little bit about their clan and 
why they think it's cool and what's different about it. And then after that's done, Roy and I will be back to talk a little bit more about L5R generally and wrap it up. Also important, they're definitely going to want to tell you why you should join their clan because they're the best. <laughs> yes, yes. P.S. The correct answer is dragon. No. <laughs> It is a correct answer. (laughs) All right, so here on behalf of the Unicorn, we have John Seals. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going, guys? Doing fine. Good. Tell us briefly who you are and, and tell us why the Unicorn are awesome. I'm from California, actually the Santa Clara region, San Jose. I've been playing L5R for 18 years, I want to say, at this nice. point. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been a few of them. Reason the Unicorn are awesome is that they're the outsiders. I mean, if you look at any other clan, they've been involved with the Empire forever. The Unicorn actually at one point left the Empire, came back, Many years later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, and they were considered the outside. They grew outside customs. They still do handshakes. In terms of the really brotherly love, really with their their peasants. But the main thing is Calvary. It's the horses. The one defining feature of the unicorn is they move more around than any other clan. If you like concepts of being vastly maybe smaller forces but being able to outmaneuver your opponent that's the biggest thing for the unicorn is that you'll be able to get into a position that you'll be able to take out provinces undefended without any resistance and then eventually when you have to you'll grow your forces to the point where it just overwhelms your opponent just based on resources so you're definitely saying that Unicorn strives for the military victory then? Yeah, I mean, the, in terms of we've seen a few attempts at honor for Unicorn with a um, little bit of a Ide honor. But in terms of the, that's probably a more defining feature. No, Unicorn throughout the history of the game has definitely been military. There's been a few, like I said, a few switch attempts. But in terms of the one thing that you will be coming to Unicorn that you will recognize with Unicorn, is military. Calvary, it's a military powerhouse. There's a reason Calvary got changed a couple of years ago is because it's probably one of the most frustrating experience. It was one of the most frustrating experiences for new players to experience when it's coming at them. Whereas it's a, it's actually a really good feature for new players because it's a powerful that you'll be able to snipe provinces undefended and really enjoy taking provinces. Like it's it's really fun. <laughs> I don't know if you agree, John, but I'd say that cavalry of late has become less about completely trying to go around the enemy army and a bit more about just overall mobility control. Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely it's it's definitely become a lot more strategic. It's not the as it used to be like where I I can just send a few guys around and I completely ignore the opposing. You actually have to either invest super heavy in one unit that can take a province or you would invest in a few smaller ones, spread them out, 
and then decide pick and choose your battles and that's the nice thing about unicorn you can choose where you want to fight the opponent the box basically allows you to completely leave a few guys at home if the opponent defends you move in a few more guys to help take the province out i mean that's the that's the tactics on unicorn it's it's being able to control when and where you fight battles compared and not at your opponent's leisure it's at your choice really quickly for the new players we got a little bit of jargon in there we mentioned the box just a bit ago when he's saying box he's referring to the clan stronghold the abilities on that and that's actually really funny because box is actually a really super you can tell him a super dated player because boxes don't even exist. It's not even a term we use anymore. Like, strongholds don't come in boxes anymore. The, the strongholds actually used to be printed on the cards in the past. But So older players will refer to strongholds as boxes. Mm-hmm. And when he referred to earlier than that, before about a switch deck, he was uh, referring to a deck that has the ability to change course during the course of a game between shooting for one victory condition, in this case, honor, to a second victory condition, which is the military one. So, with the upcoming release of the 20 festivals set, is there anything you're looking forward to doing new with the Unicorn? I'm super excited about Seilu Sensei, actually. Seilu Sensei, it gives Unicorn a control element, which they usually don't have available to them in the past. It combos well with cards in the environment of keeping your opponent locked out of battle. This plus Unicorn's natural movement is going to really limit the number of defenders that your opponent can have. It's possible that you could switch honor with it, but I think it's control is always a better option when you have a military option. So I'm really looking forward to being able to play that and run with that. I don't know if it's going to have all the tools right out the gate. But it can be really good. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Okay. That was John Ogre Seals on behalf of the Unicorn Clan. Thanks for stopping by, John. Thank you guys for having me. Here with us now is the representative of the Crab Clan. They call him Angry Crab. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that was super friendly. <laughs> uh, uh, so, hey, this is uh, Reggie speaking for the Crab Clan. Although we do have to, we do have to say, I I know you are possibly the most well known for doing the tremendous Uts bonsais at the start of tournaments but you're actually not allowed to pop our listeners eardrums so no shouting reggie all right fine i i'll use my inside voice okay (laughs) so who are the crab who are the crab they are the proud sons and daughters of hita they have defended the empire for more than a thousand years from the horrible horrible shadowlands that's all the Oni, the Goblin, the Ogres, the Trolls, all the things that go bump in the night that everyone else kind of thinks, hey, are those things real? Yes, yes, they very much are real. And yes, they will kill you. But Reggie, 
your sandals were muddy when you came into the house. How can I take you seriously? Well, <laughs> just because my sandals were dirty because I came into the house, you didn't also pay attention to the bloody Tetsubo that's in my hand. <laughs> so there you have it. Yeah. Oh, and, and also the, the Oni head that I'm carrying in my other hand, too. I believe in giving people proof is what I'm saying. I'm a Kintsuki method fan. I can get behind that. Oh yeah. (laughs) So what, what do the crab do in the card game? The crab clan in the card game are very much of a little bit of honor, dishonor, and of course, military. All three, of course, are part of the three major victory conditions in the card game. I would say one of the things that Crab do very well is that they're very good at being resistant. We have Kuni Tomokazu, who is one of the best Shugenja, where he is immune to fear. And there's a lot of fear effects going on, especially with a lot of Shugenja decks that I've been seeing thus far. Fear causes your person or their followers to bow his whole unit is immune to fear and he has a reduction on range attack which is pretty nice you can load him up on spells or or it's a little on attachments followers what have you and he goes into battle and you kind of have this quasi super unit so would you say that that crab tend to be um big tough brawny characters or or do you kind of, like, just hide behind other people? Well, if you're hiding behind other people, why are you playing crab? <laughs> That's what, you know, some powder blue clans do. Anyway, uh, much love to the crane. Not. Uh, so, uh, uh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> in, in all seriousness, the crane, the, the, the crane, the crab, um, <laughs> The crab are very much the big in your face. They are the incredible hope of this sort of thing. This thing we call L5R. <laughs> They're the bruisers. They're the enforcers. They're the defenders. They're very straightforward. There's nothing real tricksy about them unless you get into the dishonor aspect. And that's what the Yasuki family is for. Somebody has to bring in all the the raw materials to supply that war machine, right? Well, of course. I mean, you know, that's what the Yasuki are for. They make the money to buy the supplies. We get the supplies. We go smash, smash the money in. What? And all work. The crab are definitely the defenders of the empire, and their best defense is a good offense by marching over to your to their enemies and smashing them in the face. If I had to put a nice positive spin on it, we come over to your promises to break bread with you. Now, if that involves breaking the Tetsubo upside your head, the thing is is that we are sharing in the experience of our strength versus your... I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Not quite sure that works. I, I, thought we, I thought we were going for something with, you know, we go over to break bread, breadhead. It's like the same thing, right? <laughs> well, well, sure, if you want to be cliche about it. I mean, you know, jeez. Mm. I mean, okay, no. so a new big set uh, is about to drop 20 festivals 
as a crab player, what are you excited about in 20 festivals? Well, one, I'm excited that the Angry Crab's son, Hida Kozan, is still legal, so that's always awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being vain. All right, because uh, <laughs> that actually is one of my cards, but um, another player won that for me, and I, I, wanted, I really want to thank Roy Escabel for that. But on a side note, the overall thing that I'm kind of excited about is the fact that the new stronghold that we're getting gives us an ability that is very unique from others and that we can straighten. I don't know if the listeners are familiar with that mechanic yet or when the new players come in and they learn that. It's really key. I would say that we have a lot of new things coming out as far as like there's a Berserker with the Conqueror trait. So that makes for a nice super unit there. It almost seems as if like the crab are kind of being led into sort of a super unit sort of thing where you have the one guy out there and he's loaded with armor and weapons and all this stuff. And he just goes into battle as this one man army taking on everything. Which is a good pair to put with all those resistances, because if we can't, if other players can't use their abilities to make you bow, send you home, or just outright kill you, then your super unit is definitely going to smash everything in its way. Correct. It's like we are just, I hate to use another reference, it's just kind of like, you know, we're just a big hulking juggernaut. We're just coming right at you. There's nothing you can do about it. You don't work for Marvel, do you? Just just out of curiosity? No. Okay, no, just, just and, making sure. And no, this is not a pitch to work for Marvel. Not that you would turn that down if it came up. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Oh, oh, oh I know I wouldn't. So, no. so uh, well, uh, thanks for coming on and talking about the crab with us, Reggie. You know, I try to do the best I can for my clan, and uh, since I can't yell <laughs> in my soft voice, I'll say, Hida, okay? There, you know? That's, that's the best you're going to get out of me. There, there, <laughs> there we go. There you go. It'll work. <laughs> That'll do, Crab. That'll do. That'll do. And now we have our, our Phoenix representative. I wonder where could this podcast come up with a Phoenix player? Hmm. Should we go back to the forums? I can't think of anybody. Can you, Roy? Who who could possibly talk about the Phoenix? Jay, do you know anybody no. who talks about the Phoenix? No, I can't think of any Phoenix players. Oh, wait, I do know one. There's, there's me. Oh, I'm- you! Oh, Almost forgot about that. I suppose. I mean, you've been on 160 or so other episodes. I suppose we could let you on this one. Hooray! So, Jay, what is awesome about the Phoenix? All of the things. We're the priests. We're the scholars. We don't know all the secrets of the people. That's the Scorpion's territory. But we know all the secrets of the world. We know how things work. We control the primeval forces of the universe of Rokugan. We can use them. We can make great things. 
things that no other clan can really mass rival us on. Okay, now, you said priest, and Rokugan writes Shugenja is the, uh... Shugenja is the term. Th- is the term that we use, but, right, Shugenja in L5R are not D&D-style priests where you're just passive healing type. I mean, you can be, but you that's not be. all you're limited to, right? Nor... Too many people simplify it to the wizard of D&D, but nor are we that either. The Shugenja is a holy order, a holy calling. As a Shugenja, you are able to talk to the primal elements that make up the world and shape them to your will. So there's a little Healy, there's a little cleric, but there's a little wizard. You can exert your will on nature you can ask it to do what you want, and it will usually obey. And how does that translate into the card game? In the card game, four out of... Let's see, we've got, what, four themes right now? So four of those have either Shugenja or... And so with the Mantis and the Unicorn close seconds, we're pretty much the clan... If it says spell on it, it's probably for us. <laughs> So yes, any any of the spells that you see in play, we get to use. Yeah, really quickly, the spell is one of the cards that you can select through your fate deck, not the one that comes out of Dynasty. Right. And it's the attachments, it goes on your Shugenja. And it is Shugenja only. Okay. Well, the new 20 Festivals large set is about to drop. As a Phoenix player, Jay, what are you excited about in 20 festivals? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is the new stronghold. For those who haven't seen it, it lets a, we're the Phoenix. We get to bring our people back from the dead, much like our, the named Phoenix. (laughs) And as we are one of the more honorable clans, we also get to do gain some honor for doing so, which is always nice. Personally, I'm an honor player, so I'm really excited to get to use that for honor gains. But we also, it looks like they're pushing more of our military themes in 20 festivals. So, one of the things with the Phoenix, because we are, we have so many Shugenja, to keep track of them, we have to, each Shugenja specializes in one of the elements. So to keep track of them, we have to subdivide them. So right now, it looks like fire and water Shugenja are going to get their focus. Fire are everybody's favorite wizards. They will burninate all of your peasants. Water, meanwhile, are the masters of movement, and will just dance around everyone on the attack. So that's pretty much what I'm looking forward to. For the new players, it sounds like honor would probably be the first thing that they would try out as the phoenix, then maybe they can see about building up a military deck. As always, I enjoy talking to you on the podcast, Jay. Uh, Thanks for representing your clan today. Of course. My life, my soul, for the Phoenix. Hello, Samurai of Rokugan and audience of Stranger Assembly. I am Oliver Kuhn, also known as Audax, and I am a spider player. We are the Spider Clan. We are the children of the Dark Army Fulang. 
When he and his siblings fell from the heavens, Fulen crushed into the realm of evil, Jigoku, and claimed it as his own. His sisters and brothers did not care about his fate, and elsewhere created their empire, and Fulen vowed to destroy it. For millennia the Dark Army warred upon Rokugan as the master of the Shadowlands, as its adversary. He fielded demons, ogres and nightmarish beasts, and soon samurai would join his armies. Mortals corrupted by the Shadowlands taint. Undead and Mahotsukai with their blood magic. Pariahs, traitors, murderers and ravishing madmen. And then Daigotsu came, the Dark Lord. He was Fuleng's most loyal follower. Him served the tainted in the city of the Lost that was a dark mirror of the Empire. But as others before him, Daigotsu too failed to destroy it. Eventually he founded the Spider Clan and infiltrated Rokugan so that his newborn son would one day rule it. But Rokugan was invaded. Fuleng became mortal and roamed it as a monk. He gave his life to save the empire from the goddess who had usurped his power. Now, Daigotsu rules Jigoku. He has forced Empress Iveko to accept his son and followers as a great clan. For one generation they have served as conquerors. Soon Iveko's son Seiken will sit on the throne. He hates the spider. But we will prevail. Our enemies shall bow before us or fall before us. With our cards, we players continue the story of the Spider Clan. Our stronghold has a powerful fear reaction that paralyzes our enemies. Our dark paragons also cast fear into the heart of the other clans. We are allied not only to the creatures of Jigoku, but also to shapeshifting ninja, serving the shadow dragon, avatar of nothing who wants to unmake all of creation. Meanwhile, our warrior monks spread the blasphemous code of the spider among the people, and our courtiers serve as valued advisors, gaining political clout and weaving the spider's web. We are the spider clan, and we shall conquer. Up next we have... The representative of the Lion Clan, Randy Slavin. Hello, I'm here to talk about the Lions today and why they are the true samurai in Rokugan. Why are they the true samurai in Rokugan? Thanks for asking, Chris. So, back at the dawn of time, when all of the different kami, the children of the gods, are hanging around and deciding what their sticks are going to be, the patron of the Lion Clan, Akoto, decides that he's going to write a book on what it means to be a samurai, what it means to be loyal and brave and listen to your uh, commander, listen to your leaders. And he writes that book, and it has been used for a thousand years since to define what it means to be a samurai, and, and that is the lion. So, for a thousand years, the lion were the emperor's right hand. If the emperor needed something done militarily, the lion went out and did it. The different patrons of the lion families, Akoto, he was the greatest leader of men among all the great clans. Lady Matsu was the greatest single combatant among all of the different clans. Ikoma was the greatest braggart among all the clans. And then years later, when the lion finally found a family of magic users to bring aboard, they were the Kitsu, who were the greatest at communing with their ancestors. And the Lion are a very traditional clan, and they are very big into doing what would make their ancestors proud. 
And it is exactly that, that inner strength that Bushido gives them, that ancestor worship gives them, that makes them the best samurai in the Empire. And, and how does this paragon of Bushidohood, inner strength, ancestor reverence, display itself if you're actually playing the card game? If you're actually playing the card game, the personalities all have higher personal honor than most of the other clans. And that means that you gain honor when they come into play because you're telling everybody how fantastic and awesome your guys are. That lets you have easier access to the the Imperial Favor, which has a couple of in-game abilities. It also means that the Lion can both win through military means as well as through honoring out, through basically telling everybody how great they are and getting everybody to agree. A great example would be the Lion Stronghold. It more or less is what the player represents. It, uh, it's the Lion's strength um, and their, their ancestral clan holdings. And its ability is just target one of your samurai, give him a force bonus, make him stronger, equal to his personal honor. And I think it's a really good representation of the Lion saying that, you know, Bushido makes us stronger, our ancestors make us stronger. That's why we're the best. That was a really good point. <laughs> You've convinced us. I think the Lion are the best. Why have I not been playing them all these years? Curses. Well, Chris, I think the problem here is that you have yellow blindness, and so you're just looking at the wrong color yellow. You really want to be playing Lion and not the Dragon. Ah, I see now. Thank you, Sensei. Happy to help. So, so what did the Lion do better than other clans? I think, at least mechanically, in the card game, they do a very, very good job, usually, of applying pressure. One of the advantages of being the lion is that you go first. The way the game's set up, the more honorable factions go first, and the less honorable factions tend to go second. Going first is a huge advantage, and it definitely enables you to attack earlier, to buy resources earlier. It's just really the lion's bread and butter. The lion would not be very good if they did not go first. <laughs> Especially not at that starting gold. No, and that's worth that's worth noting. So the lion are the only faction that starts out producing three gold. The other factions start out producing four, and the unicorns start out producing four with an asterisk next to it. The lion, they're not really so concerned about economy. Because that's not what Honorable Samurai focus on. Honorable Samurai don't care about money. They don't care about plush goods. They don't care about fine silks. They care about doing their duty as Samurai, which, if you're a lion, usually means attacking your opponent as quickly and cheaply as as possible. (laughs) Um, As a result of that, lion tend to um, attack with reckless abandon because they know that their advantage is primarily early game tempo. And so you'll see a lot of lion personalities that focus on attacking. They give some minor benefit if they are attacking. There's a personality that is three gold, that when you're attacking is three force. If you're defending, she's one force. But if you're attacking, she's three force and is fantastic. And there's actually a personality that I'm excited about figuring out how to use in 20 festivals. Matsu Kuroko, and she attacks, and when she attacks, she can punch somebody and uh, doesn't even bow to do it. She doesn't 
cost her any resources to do this. So it, it's just an example of how the lion get minor benefits for attacking, and really as a result of having a weaker economy, kind of have to. They have to press the advantage early or else it, they're done. And when you say punch, you're referring to a melee attack effect, or is that some sort of bowing effect that happens? It's it's a melee three attack. Um, I was uh-huh. trying to... I mean, I feel like punch really signifies what she's doing. <laughs> From her art, she actually looks like she's hitting somebody with a nodachi. But uh-huh. um, who knows? From the lion and 20 festivals, she could be hitting them with a lion cub. I, it's always possible. She could actually be hitting them with a lion cub. And you are talking about, Chris, the uh, Beastmaster theme, which is in 20 festivals. It just centers around having personalities that have raised cats to fight with. And I think my favorite art in the entire set is Young Battle Cat. (laughs) And if you're a new player and you like the internet, I urge you to take a look at it because it's pretty funny. (laughs) And it's also kind of funny to destroy someone's ancestral home with a kitten attached to your samurai. (laughs) I mean, someday, someday he'll be an older Battle Cat. And it'll be less funny then. <laughs> well, it will be funny if we see the young battle cat experienced when it's still just a house cat. That would, that would be pretty funny, actually. <laughs> I have a feeling he's going to grow a little bit. <laughs> so again, new players, young battle cat, search the art so the jokes we're making make sense. <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming on and representing the lion, Randy. Thank you, Chris. Up next, we have Daniel Deneen of the Mantis Clan. How you doing, Dan? Good. How's everyone doing today? I'm doing fine. How about you, Roy? Oh, this has been great so far. So is that that's the defining characteristic of the Mantis? They're very polite and will ask how your day was? Is that how it is, Dan? Oh, we're always the most polite. We we're never uncouth or anything. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so what are the Mantis all about, Dan? The Mantis Clan, at least from its inception, I've been playing since 1998, strictly competitively on. Before that, I, I dabbled a bit. But even from the beginning, the Mantis Clan was always the counterculture to Rokugan itself, because Ro- Rokugan is a caste system. Obviously, uh, uh, the game is based on a samurai drama. And while the Mantis are samurai, they've always been the ones to be the underdog to struggle from the bottom up they also have a lot of western ideals that they'll bring in one of them is their focus on economics in almost all aspects either economic advantage and holdings or being able to spend uh, gold on fate cards to do stuff that other clans wouldn't be able to do they also have mechanically for the i would say entirety of the time been very very good at range attacks which is a style of where you usually bow a card and you target an opposing card, a follower or personality, and you're able to destroy them if your range attack is equal or greater to their current force. So that's always lended them to an aggro control mentality, which in the terms of collectible card games is the fact that you're aggressively going after your opponent, and if they end up defending against you or opposing you, you're going to be doing an attrition style where your personalities may not be pound for pound 
better than theirs, at least uh, in strength of power, force, or key. But you're going to be able to take them down and then be able to go over them after that, like where you will be destroying their cards for usually less cost than it brought to bring them into play. So you're gaining an advantage in tempo, whereas you're removing their card or unit from play and you're still remain to for a future turn or even for the current battle. That style agri-control has just been something that I've enjoyed in most card games that I've played or other endeavors. Uh, now, we can't leave a thematic discussion of the Mantis without saying something about boats, right? Correct. And that leads also into their agri-control style. They've always had an ability called Naval, and Naval has given them in various incarnations the ability to take the first action in a battle when they're attacking, which again lends itself to agro-control. When you're defending, you generally get the first action, but having the ability to take the first action, and in 20 festivals, when you have card with naval, and you are attacking, you say, as engage, I will declare naval, and then you get an action from a card in that unit that you can take. For example, there may not be many naval range attacks, but there could be na- like naval send home, naval bow. And if you do a naval range attack, I believe there's one in Ivory that where you have to, uh, it's a Suruchi where you have to discard a card to do a range three, as an example. So that way you're breaking your opponent's tempo. You're putting them on the back foot when they expected to have the advantage on you. So getting that extra action is very important for the clan as a whole. They're the sailors of Rokugan, the mightiest navy in land. So Dan, you mentioned 20 festivals uh, in there. That's the new large set that's about to drop. What do you think is going to get Mantis players excited in 20 festivals? Well, the general themes of 20 festivals for the Mantis are Kensei and uh, Moshi Thunder Shigenja. The Kensei are... The Yoritomo have always fought with dual weapons, usually peasant weapons, which would be Kama, which used to like, mow down uh, wheat. But the reason that they use the, the peasant weapons is because they're usually on boats when they're fighting for the most part, and they need weapons that are easily replaced. So the weapons that they'll be using will be of a lower grade quality than maybe other weapons, but they'll have more of them and the ability to do that. The Thunder Shigenja, they use lightning and storm power to either bow, send home, or destroy their opponents. There's a number of cards that do stand out that'll be well done universally. One of them is Yoritomo Minoru, who has the ability to increase or decrease your range attacks for an opponent's range attack, and he can even do it from home, which is a really useful ability to be able to use offensively or defensively. The Sensei, Chuna, is a Moshi Thunder one, which gives you a limited ability bow, so you can bow out a a personality that you may not want to have to deal with when you attack someone, and on the fate side, there's two cards that really stand out. One is Unholy Strike, which also increases a range or melee attack by two, allowing the Mantis to hit higher force personalities with their attacks. And then there's Standing Firm, which takes your unit's total gold cost and compares it to one or two others, and you're able to bow them out. So it's a, it's a really good cost benefit there. So... Those are the cards that are really standing out that I think people will be excited about from the Mantis side. I think the Crab may have cited that as a great Crab card, too. It's a good thing you guys are kind of buddies. Yes. That is the Mantis Clan. Thanks for coming on, Dan. 
Oh, not a problem. Now we arrive at the mystical marvels, the Dragon Clan. Here, here for us from the Dragon is Jim Chin on the left coast. How you doing, Jim? Good, good. How are you, sir? I'm okay. Why don't you tell our listeners what is different and awesome about the Dragon? Well, all right. Hopefully, I won't stray too far into Tangent Land, but I think one of the things that really strongly defines the Dragon Clan to me in terms of both the CCG and the storyline perspective is our ability as a clan to study the environment, to study either the meta of the, the CCG environment or study right the political, military situation of Ro- Rokukan and respond appropriately. right. And in, in our stronghold, that's designed and illustrated really well with our ability to just fetch a ring and use that to essentially stop whatever it is our opponent is doing. And that's just a fantastic ability, right? Oftentimes in the military matchup, being able to start with the Ring of Air and straightening your best mega unit, because I play the big unit Kensai decks, has been incredibly strong, or starting with the Ring of Earth to stop a control deck from dealing with your big unit or your, your relevant guys successfully. has just been able to essentially counter whatever your opponent's doing, provided that you spend the appropriate time reflecting and studying the environment, which to me as a player is is both interesting and kind of rewards an active study of the game and kind of how it goes. I think thematically, too, the Dragon Clan, right? We're a clan of contradictions that aren't really contradictions, kind of like the, the yin and yang of Taoist thought, right? We have both contemplative kind of mystical monks and extraordinarily practical like Miramoto warriors who wield a sword in each hand and basically like rough stuff up whenever they enter the battlefield and just being able to bring that versatility in the the kind of flavor of the story and when it comes to flipping cardboard in real life I think is a huge draw to playing as a dragon clan. You mentioned the uh, Kensai and the two weapons is there anything else mechanically that makes the dragon just the best things on the mountain? Well, I think besides Ken- so I guess to harp on Kensai with two weapons because I think that's that's what I've been playing competitively for a while. It's just, even within the whole like play Kensai or play dudes with two weapons, there's a lot of versatility and a lot of different ways you can go depending on how you're reading the environment. It's possible and pretty popular right to just run big uh, uh Kensai with two weapons and just run a lot of meta and just kind of stop whatever your opponent is doing and show up with a big force and just crush your opponents. And it's also possible to play a control route with dueling, right, to kind of tactically get rid of your opponent's best personalities as you identify them as the game develops, and then kind of control your opponent and prevent them from kind of executing their game plan. I think in terms of beyond Kensai, right, right before the onset of 20 festivals, we have uh, in the left coast, we have this pretty sick Tomori honor deck that's been making its way through the top seeds and i'm lucky enough to test with the gentleman jason marthus who's piloting that tomori honor deck and it's a it's a neat deck of contradictions right it's an honor deck that seeks to gain honor not by like avoiding combat or just kind of not in the face 
sort of stall actions, but by showing up to battle, winning a big defensive fight, killing part of your opponent's army, and just getting like six to eight honor that way. And so it's a kind of flavorful clan of contradictions still, even with the honor deck, right? You're building an honor deck, but you're not gaining honor in the traditional way, and if your opponent's not prepared for it, they can get really punished. I actually got into the game because I was a big fan of the the flavor of the Togashi monks, and while I, the running a strictly monk military or enlightenment deck hasn't always been the most tournament competitive, I think in 20 festivals they get uh, a lot of interesting options in terms of cheap followers and attachments that'll make your monks big threats, and the new holding Blessed Dojo, which gives any of your, your monks plus two chi when they're performing in action, so some of the kihos that key off chi now suddenly become a lot more threatening, and being able to roll into a battle with those options on the board, I think provides a dragon with a lot of versatility, right? You'll never know what to expect in these particular mountains, I think, if you're playing dragon well. Yeah, and our new and prospective players who are listening closely may may remember that earlier Roy and I talked about how L5R in hard mode could be going for an enlightened victory by getting all five rings into play, and so the the ring that Jim is talking about starting in play is one of those five rings, so the dragon thematically are tied to enlightenment, and while it's still a very difficult win to pull off, it's probably, would you say it's by default a little bit easier for dragon than it is for most clans? I would say so, and we had evidence of that, I think, in the Knoxville Cote just two weekends ago, where Tan and uh, Dragon Enlightenment player, or I guess he mostly plays Enlightenment, he was able to get into the top eight with an Enlightenment deck in a field that had a fair amount of aggressive, fast Mantis decks, and it's a foundational flavor element of the dragon, right? While a lot of other clans are involved in mundane concerns or earthly concerns of war and court, the dragon are kind of studying and doing our mystical shenanigans in the mountains, and being able to illustrate that by starting with a ring that just can counter a lot of what your opponent is doing, or just get you 20% to your win condition of enlightenment, is pretty fantastic and quite flavorful. Yes, I rather adore the the dragon stronghold. Now, you mentioned Blessed Dojo, but beyond that, what about 20 festivals do you think dragon players are going to be excited about? It's a pretty good question, and I've being a kind of classic dragon slash data nerd, I've kind of divided up some of the things I'm kind of looking forward to testing in 20 festivals. Out of a, a Kensai non-dueling deck, or just a Kensai like big unit deck, a couple cards that really interest me are defensive techniques to deal with the ranged attacks. Right? We know Mantis has been doing incredibly well, and being able to, to use the interrupt to just stop the Mantis deck's ranged attacks where they have to bow four or five of their followers to kill you and just being able to negate that just feels great and the battle of post plus two in my testing has actually been incredibly relevant as honor and dishonor get more popular and as the terrain and circle terrain gets played right the one where each person can only leave one guy if you're ken size at like seven eight four swinging into like around eight province strength and your opponent plays in circle terrain as their last action and if you just give your guy plus two force oftentimes you can just win that critical battle Part of the EI, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, also seems neat just to be able to, for other clans to play or fight against dragons can be a frustrating experience because you never know what will do. 
And with Art of the EI and being able to just show up and suddenly attach a weapon, draw another card, so you're not really down on cards when you show up to a fight sounds neat. For those who are interested in dueling with what I think is the, the clan that's best able to duel right now, Clash of Blades just sounds kind of nutter butters. Whether you're going Yodo Sensei Honor or not, being able to strip an opponent's key battle action, being able to stop that gain an honor, see, just seems incredibly versatile. So yeah, that's that's like my starting list of top top four, top five cards. I think I'm interested in as a Dragon Clan player. I think he's enthused, Chris. Do you think he's enthused? I, I think he counts as enthused. Excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming in and sharing that enthusiasm with us, John. Thanks for having me. Next up, we have the representative of the Crane Clan, Robert Denton. Thanks for visiting us, Robert. And thank you for having me. All right, so what is so special about the crane that they get to, what, define everything about Rokugani culture ever? That's right. They are the architects of Rokugani culture. They're the epitome of culture and grace in the Emerald Empire. They're not just trendsetters. They created the entire culture and setup of the Emerald Empire. Although that that's important, but I wouldn't say that's exactly what makes them cool. Like, to me... The Crane are, I guess, I would say, beautiful, graceful warrior poets, clever and cultured with a healthy helping of smarminess. And that's probably what makes them so cool, to my mind. They're sort of like that really, really well-connected bro that you want to hang out with because he you know, can get you into all the best clubs and knows all the best stuff to order and has all the chicks dating him. That's who the typical crane guy is. I'm just going to guess, going on a limb here, dear Bobby, but given the demographic of gamers, they may have actually just hated that guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Well, a lot of people are very jealous of the crane, I have to say. It's It's a common reaction, you know. In a more more serious note, the Crane are really are sort of the warrior poets of the Empire. They're the cultured samurai. They're about elevating everything that they do to an art form. And really, that's kind of the axle that the wheel spins around when when the Crane are characterized in the card game and in fictions and things. Doing more with maybe not as much. They're honorable... They're social dynamos. They're the masters of many arenas. They have the best politicians, the best rhetoricians, the best artisans. They have uh, arguably the greatest duelists, at least top two, I would say, best duelists. <laughs> the Kakita Dueling Academy is the metric by which all other dueling techniques are compared. And other dueling techniques are notable in contrast to the crane dueling technique. They're wealthy, they're beautiful, they're graceful, well-connected, influential, resourceful, clever. They're about politics, honor, and civility. And that is the crane in a nutshell. I guess I could uh, I could go on, but I don't want to, like, bogart all the airtime. No, it's fine. It's just, when it comes to the card game, how does that show up 
in terms of what the crane player is actually playing. As far as the card game is concerned, the crane's biggest strengths are traditionally the control element of the deck, their honor gains, and uh, their dueling ability. The crane really kind of embrace, in the setting, this few can overcome many mentality, and that has traditionally been a recurring theme amongst crane decks and crane cards. You'll have defensive control decks that seek to win by making their opponent look terrible in comparison. You'll gain a lot of honor by winning a handful of uh, important victories. You'll outduel your opponents one-to-one. If you want to play that faction with the one stoic samurai that cuts down multiple enemies and uh, wins the day, then the crane is probably your faction. They like to play control decks that eliminate your opponent's options. The crane are very resourceful and clever, you see, and that sort of shows up in the control elements that their decks tend to take. Even crane decks that have uh, a more aggressive play style will typically have control elements in them where you can shut off an opponent's ability or you can keep an opponent from doing something that he would normally do. They tend to accumulate a lot of honor doing things that other decks would do and not get honor for just because they do it better. So really, when it comes to um, to playing a crane deck, that's kind of what you're playing. You're playing that kind of defensive control kind of deck. Although I understand in 20 festivals, the crane have a few more victory options uh, becoming more viable, but honor has always sort of been the stereotypical crane victory. You want to become beyond reproach. And uh, typically, you can do it... A lot of decks will do it by accident. (laughs) So that's kind of the crane thing as far as the card game is concerned. Well, you mentioned 20 festivals in there. As a crane player, what are you most excited about in the 20 festivals set? Oh, the Kakita Jesters. I like seeing the honor losses, the dishonor stuff in there, the cranes slandering their opponents in the courts and things like that. That excites me. So I'm looking forward to that, personally. Of course, I've always sort of liked dueling decks and things, too. So, And I've, I've always kind of liked the magistrate themes, too. I like, to, I like the flavor of crane magistrates and magistrates in general. So I'm excited about that, too. But Really, it's the it's the new courtly stuff, the slandery stuff that we're getting. That's that's what I'm really excited about. I have to say, even though I'm I'm generally not playing Crane, that I love the flavor text on the jesters. <laughs> Just lots of little barbed faux compliments in there. Yeah, it's amazing. Like uh, the Crane will basically just you know insult you in the politest way. <laughs> And they'll say sorts of things that'll make you kind of blink and double take. It's like, was that a compliment or an insult? That was an insult right there. That was definitely an insult. Yes. But you can't call them out on it, really. Although <laughs> some of the flavor texts on those cards, I, I'm pretty sure you could call them out. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to, you know, the crane go for the throat when it looks like they're not. That's kind of the crane thing. They're smarmy, but 
that's why I like them. <laughs> okay. Thanks for stopping by, Robert. Thank you for having me. Last but certainly not least, we have the Emperor's underhand, the Scorpion Clan, represented today by David Lapp. How you doing, David? Good, how you doing? Alright, and what is it that defines the the place of the Scorpion Clan in L5R? So back, I'd say, in Diamond, I started getting back into the game. I was taught it a few years earlier. I was always told that I would be... That was a clan I'd probably most like. And after looking at it, I think what drew me to it was the idea of the ends justify the means, uh, so to say, is kind of the mentality built around it. I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. So then I started looking into the backstory, and you know, any new players, I would recommend kind of reading all the stuff about Bayushi. Because that kind of gave me into it, the idea that he wore a mask to hide his smile, and the whole retelling of the Scorpion and the Frog story so that's what drew me the most to the clan and the idea of the manipulation and the loyalty aspect to the Empire. So to me, those were the aspects that drew me the most thematically into at least getting into the game outside of the mechanics of um, design and actually playing the card game. So in the mechanics of the card game, if you're if you're sitting down and playing with Scorpion, what, what sort of play style is a scorpion deck likely to have so there's a couple different options i've always been drawn to dishonor as someone just you know in real life liking dealing with small numbers the idea of trying to count and making the right moves to systematically you know drop an opponent to neg 20 in a way in which to maintain you still holding your last province to me it was just more of a draw than honor and so there's a couple options. That's being the, the traditional Scorpion deck. So as far as, you know, Dishonor was always what I've been drawn to. But for military players, Bob the Wave Martin's uh, very good at Scorpion military, and him and I confer a lot. The other options, at least in 20 festivals, right now there's the Yororu Sensei for a uh, ninja control deck. Very glad to see Poison Tokens come back. It looks as if Kensai is going to be another playable option. So they seem like two military themes that we're going to have, while also having the Dishonored deck as for a control player. So I think from what I've seen, there are going to be quite a few options. Even on the Dishonor aspect, Shibata Sensei is still legal. That's still my favorite. And there's also the Fortification Sensei, which goes back to some of the older decks that was based around boosting province strength as defense. There's also a Shigenju build versus a Courtier build. Military, you've got Ninja versus a Samurai build of Kensai. So I think there are a lot of options for new players going into 20 festivals. What is this, Ninja, Poison? Surely no no great clan in the service of the Emperor could ever, ever stoop to such methods. I, I don't understand. Well, the idea behind the ninja is being the, un- you know, kind of goes with the underhand of the emperor in doing what you must for the greater good of the empire. And it fits with the themes of things that you know, the normal Rokugan 
occupant doesn't want to know about, the Scorpion are willing to do. Which is, again, you know, one of the other themes that I liked about the clan. It seems Dave is uh, definitely excited about a lot coming up in 20 festivals. I'm just going to ask, were you most excited about coming up? Honestly, right now, it's kind of a personal thing for me. So, you know, I'm a friends with a lot of people in the community. It's why I, I still love traveling to Cotes and why I suggested for any new players getting to know the people and understand that this isn't just a card game, that there's a lot going on outside of it. Like, yeah, I like to drink and a big beer aficionado, but getting into the, my point is I've got a, a personal vendetta right now with James Balthus because he won, I forget which Cote, but he chose for the Mantis to steal bitter lies maliciously. So right now, anybody following the feeds on Facebook or, or him and I's personal feeds, uh, I've called him out Saturday for the Oklahoma Cote in the sense that the Mantis want to take Trader's Grove and steal it maliciously while Scorpion right now want to save it. So right now, that's, that's kind of what excites me going into these tournaments that there's a personal thing that I want the Scorpion clan to save Trader's Grove before the Mantis try to take it. And Dan Deneen kind of helped me in that. You know, we went down to Knoxville together and he had, we had a long talk about, you know, people need to take it seriously. These choices that, you know, if you don't save something, it may get destroyed in what's to come. So, you know, giving what Balthus chose, it, it, you know, it, a lot of it's in jest going back and forth. Honestly, it's, it's been a lot of fun. That's what I'm looking forward to is those kind of rivalries, you know, in between clan that's been created. So. Right now, for me, that that's going into 20 festivals, what I'm most looking forward to. Two things in here. For the first, I, I just wanted to, just as a, you, you could be a nice example, if I'm not mistaken, of something that, that Roy and I were talking about earlier. We talked about people traveling for Cote, and so you've actually flown into Oklahoma City for this weekend for the, the Cote there, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm actually out with uh, Steve Martino and, and uh, James Matthews right now. There you go. See, look at this. We're we're ruining this man's evening. <laughs> it's all good. You're going to be playing on on Saturday the 28th, and this is going to be the first weekend of tournaments that the 20 festivals base set will be legal for. So, out of 20 festivals, what is your secret weapon that you're building a new deck around that you're adding into an old deck that you're just you just can't wait to unleash? One thing I'm, I'm really glad is back is Bayushi Zhao. She was one of my favorite personalities from, I want to say, Celestial. Could have been going into Emperor. I know Dead of Winter was the set, because I actually went back to get my old copies of her to slot into the deck. I think she's great for any Dishonor deck. Just as far as cards coming back, that was the most exciting thing for me, Dynasty side. Fate side, I think there's a few new toys. Civil Discussion is back. They've kept Mercantile Conflict back. There's a new card for a, a, a courtier blow-up, which can be good for any new player that gets into Dishonor and realizes you, you don't want to actually keep guys in battle. You don't want to give your op- your opponent the opportunity to re-honor their guys or uh, gain honor. On the other hand, it's, it's a very important tactic for your opponents because sometimes they don't want to leave you in battle because you can keep playing battle actions that'll make them lose honor. So it's very much a mind game involved in that aspect. So Jal coming back was a favorite of mine. I know there's there's quite a few other cards 
for other clans, but she was my favorite. Okay, so as you just heard, David is at the Oklahoma City Cote. So if you're listening to this and you want to find out what happened at the Oklahoma City Cote, you could if you go to aldirac.com slash forum, one of the sub-forums on there will be the 2015 spring Cote season. There will be a thread for the Oklahoma City Cote. You can look in and, and see how we did. But thanks for coming on the show, David. Hey, no problem. Thanks for the invite. Well, there was our, our nine clan representatives. So now I'm sure that each of our listeners has absolutely fallen in love with one or more clans. A lot of people do end up feeling strongly attached to one clan, but when you're starting out, play the field a little bit. Maybe you have a primary clan and a secondary. It works out just fine. But now that our, our, our listeners have decided that what sort of clan they want to try out first, where should they go to, to try to find players, Roy? Well, it's definitely always good to check your friendly local game store because they definitely know who plays what in their shop. So if they know some people show up with this really loud group of people that like to scream things in different languages, they will definitely know because, one, they're going to have product for them because L5R being sold in the shop is a really good indicator that there's some players in the area that play the game. And if your first choice of friendly local game store doesn't do it, or if you don't don't have a convenient one, AEG has a very vibrant forum at alderac.com slash forum. You can go on there and find the appropriate sub-forum. I'm sure you're capable of looking at that yourself because I'm apparently too lazy to have done it before we recorded the segment. And you just be like, new player in such and such? And people will come and say, well, okay, maybe if you're in Fairbanks, you're out of luck. But but other than that, <laughs> people will come and say, if you're in Anchorage, you're okay. But I don't know about Fairbanks. People will come and say, oh, yeah, this is, we play at such and such a store, or we we play at so-and-so's house, or however it is that that group is is organized. If it's tournament season, like right now, it's, it's Cote season, you can look and see if there's a Cote coming up. Of course, if you show up with a starter deck, you're going to get destroyed in the tournament, but as I kind of indicated earlier, L5R more so than any other competitive card game. I, I think you can have a blast at a big tournament with no expectation of doing well because people are so friendly and people always love to see new players. And you can kind of start getting plugged into this social scene where people travel a lot to hit up Kote. So absolutely, if you kind of get into that, you can go to Kote that are states apart and see some of the same people who are diehards who have traveled to play the game and to see these people that they get to see several times a year at the L5R tournaments. I still remember the one time I played against someone who literally flew from England and was doing the craziest thing imaginable, playing a Ronin deck to just play L5R in a Kote. I, I had a great time eventually destroying him with the mighty power of the unicorn, but 
it was just such a blast to play from someone who literally traveled time zones in order to play the game that I had drove maybe an hour to play too. So you can definitely feel that sort of connection. Strange Assembly recommends that you check with your financial advisor before you book a transatlantic flight just to play a card game, though. I, we, we do got to say that. <laughs> so we said we'd close out with a few sort of strategy tips. I have a few I wanted to toss in here. We'll see what Roy wants to toss in. So the very first thing I'll say, and this should be a concept that's, that's important, that if you do a lot of card games, or even if you do a lot of just board games generally, I'll note is that Establishing your early economy is very important. You need to see holdings early on. If you don't get to buy holdings on turn one and turn two, you're just not going to be able to buy enough as the game goes on to keep up with your opponent. So you have the ability on your first turn to cycle some cards out of your provinces back into your deck, basically to try to see more holdings at the end of your First turn, just as at the end of every turn, if you have cards sitting in your provinces, you have the ability to discard, they refill face down, and then you'll get to see stuff in new times. It's so important to get your economy going first turn, but sometimes people, they'll have that favorite awesome personality that they, they really want that's sitting there in the province and they don't want to send them away, and you've just got to bite the bullet and send them away to get your money because none of the rest of it is going to matter if you don't have the ability to buy characters and stuff to enhance them your clan champion will look down on you if he watches the province he turned face up and burn because you didn't buy the economy needed to allow your clan to triumph <laughs> yeah yeah we're dynasty side stuff the deck construction rules are pretty straightforward you get three copies of most cards unless the card specifically has the keyword on it unique and the dynasty side is probably the one where most new players have the trouble because they do want to include all those super awesome characters that they managed to open in their first couple of booster packs. But the thing is, the deck minimum for the dynasty side, except under very special circumstances, is 40 cards. And that should also be regarded as the deck limit. Please do not include more than 40 cards in that uh, Dynasty side deck. And of course, all these things we're saying here, once you play a little bit more, you know, you can choose which rules to break or not. But yeah, 40-40 are the deck limits for both sides. I, I would agree that that should be both a minimum and a maximum as, as your, your general rule. When you're building the contents of your Dynasty deck, it's going to be almost all holdings and personalities. There's a card type called events that we didn't mention earlier that goes in your dynasty deck, and those are one-shot things for the most part that come out of your dynasty deck. You'll at most have a couple of those in your deck. But you also want to make sure that you have enough holdings. And so by default, when you are building your first deck, I would tend to say that you should probably go with 21 personalities and 19 holdings, give or take. Definitely not less than 18 holdings. You think that's about, about right for building a generic starting deck? When a player gets more experience, they'll run into various gold schemes, as we in the community have come to call them. But as a new player, you're not going to understand or get those schemes right away. So, yeah, as a rule of thumb, 18 is where your target holding percentage should be. 
I would say that for new players, one of the most common things that will spoil L5OR if you have two inexperienced people playing and they're both playing military decks is that people don't want to attack. Because, right, you, if you attack, oh, well, what if they defeat me? Or if I attack and they don't defend, then I have very little defense. And so the kind of the worst thing that can happen to an L5R game is you have two military decks that just stare at each other and nobody wants to attack. And then they both build up these two big, huge armies. And now really nobody wants to attack because if I split my army, then you'll combine and crush it. If I attack all at one, you'll just let me take the province and then swing back and take all of mine. So. And that generally means that someone has made a strategic error earlier in the game, that people should have been attacking but weren't. So my recommendation when you are first sitting down to play is just attack. If you go first and you have the ability on turn, you buy gold on the first two turns, maybe there's a guy in there on second turn, you buy some more guys on turn three, at the start of your turn four, attack. Or not at the start, but you know, at the start of your recovery, attack. It's probably the right thing to do, and if you don't attack, you will never be able to develop the sense for when you should be attacking and how many guys you should be attacking with. So, just swing away. You also won't be able to see what your opponent is going to do in response to your attacks, which goes again into, once again, the very deep strategy to L5R as a whole. Once you get into battle, there's a lot going on in a battle. You can bow your enemy guys. You can, sometimes you can reduce their force. There's melee and ranged attacks that can potentially kill cards. Those represent shooting someone with a bow, stabbing them with a spear, whatever. Hitting them with a giant tetsubo. Yes, yeah. Fear effect. We've heard fear effects mentioned. Those can bow personalities and followers. Just all sorts of things. But do not underestimate the power of movement tricks. Uh, some of it's obvious, like sending home my opponent's guys so I can now crush their smaller army, or moving my personality back into the battle. That that kind of thing you'll, you'll probably kind of obviously get, but there's also can be great value in the limited number of cards that let you pull personalities of your opponents into the battle when they don't want them there, where you, there's usually called Harpoon but especially eject or retreat cards that let your personalities get out of the battle do not underestimate the power of those battles in l5r are a very all-or-nothing affair once you get to resolution and so if you're losing a battle the ability to get the heck out of there with your best unit and have that unit live to fight another day is a huge deal. If you have committed to a big all-in attack and your opponent just doesn't defend, now you might be able to pull a couple of your units out of the battle so that they're still available to defend when your opponent was anticipating being able to just swing back and, and crush your undefended provinces. Everybody needs to be prepared to do things like that, and I think it's very easy to underestimate the value of those sorts of effects in combat. Flexibility. It's very important to have as much flexibility in combat as you can. I think another thing to do is to just try. We mentioned earlier that pick one, maybe two, 
threes might be stretching it, but definitely try different things because one experienced players are definitely not going to try and grind you into the ground because one, they want to show you how to play the game because they understand you're new. And two, they definitely want to make sure that you learn the game that you have taken an interest in wanting to play. And as the new player, definitely don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to tip your hand as to what you might be doing to your opponent because you're just not quite sure how something works out mechanically. And most important is that make sure you keep a level head because you might actually in your first couple of games get stomped into the ground, but that's that's okay. If you learn something about the game each time you play, then you'll be that much closer to pulling off whatever victory condition you've chosen to uh, accomplish. There you go. Some final words of wisdom for the new players. We hope that you enjoy listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Legend of the Five Rings, you can go to l5r.com or imperialassembly.com, which is where you'll find things like fictions and articles that the the designers of the game have put out. Like we mentioned, you can go to aldirac.com slash forum to go directly on the AEG forums. If you're on the l5r.com page, there will be links there that will take you to the clan forums. The main forum should be able to point you in the right direction. Sure. And again, we'll, you know, we don't want to go by without mentioning again the uh, the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund, the charity auction that they have every year, and you can find out more about that at jackvassal.org. Oh, yes, very much so. We've mentioned this before that L5R players amongst gamers tend to be more generous than most, and the most important thing is that when it comes to charities like this, it's definitely up to the players as a whole to make them successful and useful and stuff. And definitely it's also true that, you know, life is hard enough at times. If you need help, don't be afraid to reach out. The help we get from strangers, from different organizations, from even most importantly, fellow gamers can really get us through those difficult times when life just throws us a curveball. What are you trying to do? Somebody's going to start trying to shame me into starting up solving the riddle again. <sighs> well, you you can solve the riddle. No one's stopping you. <laughs> that was a, a a charity tournament series I used to to organize, but it's been been several years since I did it. I it's like, oh, I should do that again, oh, but it's so much work. Mm. I know I enjoyed ripping apart my uh, stone of remembrance one time when I absolutely had to save my clan champion. And, you know, those people in uh, got help from the Red Cross over in Japan right when they needed it the most. We mentioned earlier that Alderac has released uh, a couple. They've released two, Stone of Remembrance and Make-A-Wish. Make-A-Wish was for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And those were both promo cards that the only way to get them was to buy them and then the donation and then the money that you paid for it would go to the charity. And the way that each of those worked was that you could include it in your deck at a tournament and it would have a really powerful effect, but you had to rip the card up to use it. So, you know, if you want to make another wish, you got to donate again. <laughs> Worth it. 
every time. Yeah. All right. You have been listening to Strange Assembly, a tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us on the web at strangeassembly.com or look up the podcast on iTunes and subscribe there. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Strange Assembly. If you want to get a hold of me directly, I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Jeremiah Roy, I am Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. This was worth it. Every penny.